From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? Joining us, as always, uh, the two men without whom it would just be me talking into the void once again, and I do enough of that on my own. <laughs> Roger Mitchell and Charles Morgan. Gentlemen, welcome. How are you, Grant? Good to hear from you. Hey, up, doing Grant. Well, Rog? Hey, up, Grant. Now, uh, it's good to hear now, your voice, mate. It's good to hear your voice. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> one, of, one of you has had a haircut this week, and regular viewers won't have any problem guessing which one. <laughs> yeah after lockdown just got and said take it all off take it all off so i look yeah. like one of the bros yeah well let's hope you're not uh possibly uh samsonite in your <laughs> i'll tell you what it is i'll tell you why he's got it cut like that grant it's that he's spending so much time with startups and young people he's desperately trying to get down with the kids actually you know what you're right i should have guessed that with the earring shouldn't i i should have yeah, got yeah. that yeah, yeah, I should have got that. Well, gentlemen, we have um, we have a very, very special guest joining us shortly. Um, Giles, why don't you introduce our upcoming guest? Yeah, absolutely. It is a real joy, I think, for all of us, particularly those who are of our audience who are from the UK. John John Inverdale has been at the heart of, I guess, British sports broadcasting, well, for well over thirty years, and in that time, he's fronted up on both TV and radio genuinely all of the world's biggest sporting events and he's also interviewed the good the bad and and probably the ugly from the world of sport in that time and he's a proper journalist he's not one of these guys who's sort of a converted player who's become a pundit Um, and he started his journalist career after graduation in 1982 um, with BBC Radio Lincolnshire and through a series of lucky breaks and, and progression of through his talent, really, he got to BBC National Radio and then to TV on sport, which I'm sure he'll talk about. And he's always been at the heart of the story and, and one of these guys in sport that I think I've always enjoyed because he's not afraid to ask the difficult questions of the, of the people in front of him. He's um, a proud Southampton fan and also, I think, um, Lincoln City, probably from when he was sort of in his early years. And he's also chairman of the National League of Rugby that represents the third and the fourth tier of of rugby, English rugby clubs. So a, a guy who has a real finger on the pulse, I think, of all levels of the sport. And I think it'll be a, a great joy to have on the show. Can I just can I just add, Giles, uh, um, my own little uh, background to, to John Inverdale? Uh, it was probably about the end of the 80s where I offered, I'd just come back from Italy and I'd offered my services to, to Sky Sport to be kind of like stats guy to what they were doing with Italian football. They just got the rights for it. And I was there in Chiswick and, you know, we did a lot of shows and I got to, to know various people, including John. And then uh, I went back to Italy for my main career and they said to me, look, do you want to think about doing a, a kind of like phone-in uh, update of what's happening in Italian football. And uh, J- John was the, was the anchor of that show. 
And I have to say that, you know, this is a special, a special episode for me because um, it brings back a lot of memories and, and most of all, a lot of kindness from, from professionals who had every right to say, well, what's going on here? This is just a, a nobody that's getting, you know, five minutes on the show. And um, I learned an awful lot from John and, and, and I, I remember those times with, with great fondness. But Raj, look, it's hard to believe that you've now made it to the point where you're a nobody with your own podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that irony wasn't... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely true. We've all, we've all come so far. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, on that note, why don't we uh, do the sensible thing and uh, and bring John onto the show? John, a very warm welcome to the big interview. Uh, it's really wonderful for us to turn the tables on on the Grand Inquisitor of Sport and for us to get the chance to to speak to you. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm, I'm dreading what the questions are going to be. <laughs> I shall try not to <laughs> on the fence too much. You must have made a decision at some point that sport was going to be where you focused your journalist training. And what is it about sport that sort of compelled you to, to work in that, in that whole world as well? Listen, wherever anybody is listening to this, anywhere in the world, we are all products of our upbringing. I, I do think it's almost as simple as that. And which is something actually we may come on to a bit later on when we talk about how sport is run and all that sort of stuff. And I think... You know, you're either born with that kind of sporting gene if, or you're not. My dad's rugby was his great passion. He was an amateur boxing referee as well, and he loved boxing. Great fan of athletics too. My mum was a very talented tennis and hockey player. So if I hadn't liked sport, it would have been a very kind of rebellious thing to do or, to, or, or maybe a typically rebellious thing to do. And I think in those circumstances, you either fully embrace the environment that you're brought up in or you, or you don't. I mean, this, this is no criticism at all of my sister, but she has zero interest in sport of any description. You know, she'll watch the Grand National and, you know, she'll watch a Six Nations game, but it kind of ends there. I was at the other extreme and just basically all aspect, anything with a ball, anything with <laughs> four legs that ran around in a circle, whatever, I, I instantly loved it. And so... You know, as the years go by, you just pick up. And, and I, again, I think it's one of these things that you don't realise at the time. You only realise subsequently how beneficial it's going to be. But all the while, whether you're 5 or 10 or 15, you're picking up information about sport because you're watching it. You're watching test matches and David Steele batting, you know, you know, the guy with the glasses <laughs> all those years ago. And you're watching Red Rum win at Aintree. And you're picking up all this information, and then years later, that's what you're able to bring to the party as a broadcaster. You don't actually have to look it up. That's the, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, a musical thing that, you, you know, you can be Noel Gallagher and you can recite the back catalogue of Lennon and McCartney. You, do, you don't need to look it up. You don't need to see what the first track on Revolver is. You just know it instinctively because it's always in your head. So if you've grown up with this from day one, you don't actually have to do any research. I mean, I've got you know, loads and loads of books in my house. And it's not to say I don't know everything in the books. Of course, you don't know all that. But the salient points and the trends in sport and all that sort of stuff that you've lived through, you remember because you've actually had that personal experience. And that does, I think, give you a huge advantage years later when you're doing interviews with perhaps people who 
don't want to answer questions. And you can say, well, I think you're fine, though. Even if you go back to whatever it was, and just very quickly, because this has been a very long, rambling answer, the recent European Super League and all the you know, furore over that, you know, I was part of an Italian football team on Sky in its early days in 1989. We interviewed Silvio Berlusconi about that very subject 32 years ago. That was so, me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, so I know it was. So, so there, in a sense, in sport, there is nothing new under the sun. It's just the cyclical nature of things and the same old subjects keep coming up again and again and again. So, John, you grow up with sport. You've got sport-mad parents and it's in your, it's in your DNA. You've picked it all up. You've absorbed sport is, is your point. So once you'd qualified as a journalist and sort of learned that learned the, the, the training required as a proper journalist, did you make a conscious decision to go into sport or did it happen by accident? No, I made a conscious decision not to go into sport because I wanted to play every weekend. I wanted to play rugby every weekend in the winter. I wanted to play tennis and cricket in the summer. I had no desire to go into sport. I dabbled in it at my local radio station when it suited me. So I'd say if there was something that needed doing on a Friday afternoon, I'd say, I'll do that because I was playing on the Saturday. I wasn't prepared to compromise that. And then, so what happened? So what was the, what was the moment? Because you did. Well, I mean, the, key I, moment, you, well the key moments, well, the decision time was I got offered a job in London and I was down, I'd been down there for a while. And then in um, July, 20, no, July 20, God, if only it was 20, <laughs> 19, 18, I think it was 18, something like that. No, 1988. I got asked if I wanted to do, had six weeks in Seoul during the winter, uh, winter during the, the Summer Olympics. And I had to, that was the first six weeks of the rugby season, basically. And that was key decision time. And Who were you playing for then? Uh, Who was, what playing, rugby was, team? No, I was playing for Isha in those days. It was Isha then? Yeah. And, um, you know, one of those, and, it, and, and when I got back from Seoul, I was going to do, be doing Saturday afternoons on Radio 2, as it was in those days, and doing sports report and things, which was a programme, again, that I'd obviously grown up with forever and a day listening to that famous tune at five o'clock. And uh, went on a walking holiday. And that I got the phone call on the Friday. No mobiles, obviously, but I got a phone call on the Friday. And I said, look, I'm going up to Yorkshire, Yorkshire for the weekend. Let me have a fortnight, a fortnight. Let me have a weekend to think about it and I'll call you on Sunday to give you the answer because they wanted it pretty sharpish. Uh, whether, I've never actually asked whether they wanted the answer pretty sharpish because somebody else had been asked and had turned them down and they were now running out of time. Actually, that's, that's literally, it's only just occurred to me. So actually, maybe. <laughs> anyway, whatever. Uh, so um, so I, I remember being at a pub in Kettlewell in the Yorkshire Dales, uh, just as the road turns to the left, if anybody knows it, and just sitting there with a pen and a piece of paper and a pint of beer writing... This is, the, you know, the, the question at the top of the table was, this basically is the, is the life changer. You're not going to be playing games every Saturday afternoon. You're going to be working every weekend from now for a very long time. This is the decision. And, uh, you know, a, a line down the middle, the pros and the cons, and then at the end of it, I, I kind of knew what the answer was anyway. But you have to go through the process to get yourself to that point. And uh, I, can remember, I can remember walking across from the pub. There's a, there's a post box, a phone box, about 50 yards away. And I can't remember if it was a 10p or a 20p or whatever it was in those days. <laughs> and going in there and, and making a phone call that basically changed my life. And saying, yes, I'd love to go to Korea. And it all went from there. 
And from there, you haven't looked back. I mean, you haven't, you have, you haven't looked back. I mean, that really was a game changer. You had to make a decision on the pros and cons. Then you did it. And did you ever look back? Did you ever regret the decision? Or once you got to Seoul, you what Ben Johnson doing all the things. You had you had the ultimate news story in 1988, the sort of biggest news story in sport, probably. God, I don't know for at least a decade. Did you then know this was your home and that you were you were you were in it? Yeah, there were many many occasions though. To be honest when on the most glorious October day or April day or whatever, not a cloud in the sky, and you're stuck in a dungeon cellar without any light, and you knew what the weather was like outside, and you were thinking, God, I would be giving anything to be running around a field at the moment. This is, this is the kind of day to be out there, just breathing the air. Um, but you knew, you know, it, it, it wasn't. It was a hard decision to make, but it wasn't a hard decision to make because you knew that, what stage of life, you know, you were reaching and all that sort of stuff. And, and, you, and you're right. And from that moment onwards, you know, just sometimes the dice fall your way, basically. I mean, it's, as, it, it's, it's not as simple as that, but, it, but in, in a funny kind of way it is because it was an opportune moment that BBC Radio was changing. The sport was leaving Radio 2 to go to a new radio station called Radio 5, which preceded Radio 5 Live. So they had to have a front person for big events that they would not normally have done in the old days of Radio 2. So that meant suddenly I was in Rome for the for Italia 90 and things like that. And then it, and then it, it almost becomes like, almost, it's like, almost like a game of poker that, you know, you go from 2 to 4 to 8 to 16, you're constantly building up these chips the whole time. And the more big events you go to, the more events you tend to go to, because you've already done the big events and you've then got the experience of how to talk about you know, the occasion and the enormity of this, that and the other, and also to confront moments like in Atlanta when the bomb goes off at Centennial Park and things like that. You're just building up this experience of how to deal with the unexpected. You know, 89, well, this, you know, a year after Seoul, you know, you had Hillsborough to deal with. So, so very quickly, you're getting a, a lot of disparate experiences that help you you know, build this kind of portfolio of perceived wisdom anyway. John, can I, can I ask you, obviously, you, you, you're throwing at the deep end in all these things, you know, these, these huge events. I mean, you've covered, you know, everything from Wimbledon, the Ryder Cup to the Olympics and athletics to, to Cheltenham. And you are throwing at the deep end. You are having to think on the fly. And, and I think when you started your career, you know, it was before the age of social media. It was a, it was a very different time, and you know I I think back to the and hopefully you don't mind talking about this that, that your famous gaffe at the Cheltenham Festival in 2015, which was hilarious. I mean, to anyone that had grown up on Coleman balls in in private eye, it was just a wonderful piece of 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 you know it was an accident on radio, and back in when you, at the beginning of your career that would have been laughed at and and chuckled about and would have appeared in private eye. But obviously, when it happened in 2015, in the age of social media, it becomes a huge problem for you. And, and you know, a lot of ink is spilled, and there is there are people calling for all kinds of outrageous punishments for what was obviously just a slip of the tongue. How has that journey been for you, from the beginning to where you are today, uh, on a personal level? Because it must be really quite difficult to navigate that. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a, actually it's it's the kind of question that you ask rugby players who played in the early 90s and then latter right. 90s. It's yeah. like going from the, the amateur to the professional era. And I was a much more natural broadcaster. 
in the days before social media and just went with the flow. Yeah. I and just said what I thought. Yeah, I bet. And if there was a problem, I apologized. And if there wasn't, there wasn't. And you moved on. If I say got away with, that's, that implies guilt. I don't I think you, I think you were, you were able to say things then 25 years ago that you certainly couldn't say now. To me, anyway, and maybe that's just me getting older and becoming more conscious of it. I, you were able to broadcast, if, if you know, if you not use a cricketing analogy about somebody opening their shoulders and just swinging the bat, you could broadcast right. in that way. You could you could put your shoulders open and just just talk as as it, as you saw it, whatever you saw happening in front of you, whether it was at the open goal or whatever it might be, you could just talk. As social media became more and more intrusive and more and more the agenda setter really, which I think is the, is the most retrograde step that we've got to. Social media is setting the agenda. It's not the news agenda that is dictating to social media. It's the other way around. But the, rarely has, has, a, has a dog ever allowed its tail to wag it in the way that w- the media has allowed this scenario to, to come to pass. But it, for me now, certainly, I'm very conscious. And the last, last few years... I've been very conscious, and every time I've been thinking, that's quite a good line, actually. But I've, but, and you're thinking this in a split, 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 split nanosecond. Yeah. But every time I've thought, that's quite a good line. But I've also thought, but somebody's going to not like that. And do you know, I can't yeah. be bothered with the hassle. It's, yeah. you know, I, I totally get it. And it's such a tragedy for the audience because it, it just takes away that that spontaneity and and as you say those lines which are just they resonate with so many people at that moment you know the Kenneth Wollstenholm line from the 1966 World Cup is the thing that everybody remembers about that about that, yeah, yeah. that moment and, and 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 by neutering the commentators by expecting them to be live and talking about events that are happening in front of them and yet hostage to any kind of gaff they might make. It, it, to me, it's just... There's, a, there's a local radio station near where I live called Radio Jackie, and they have a presenter on there called Mick Brown, who used to be on Capital Radio many years ago. I listen to Mick Brown. People listening to this who have their own agendas will say, the reason you do that is because he's not subject to the strictures of you know, public service broadcasting and all that sort of stuff, which is true. I would also say I listen to him because there was a news story the other day about uh, somebody who was very seriously injured driving a car along a motorway. Uh, he was in, seriously injured because people were throwing bricks off a motorway bridge and the car went off the road and the guy was very seriously injured. Now, that, that you know, any normal, rational thinking human being would say that conduct of those individuals on the bridge was simply not it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. And think about the consequences, you know. Anyway, but, but you wouldn't, if you were presenting on Radio 4, you would just, have to, you know, you would then say it was 11 minutes past eight and move on. You just said, I've had, an, and Mick Brown said, I've just had enough of morons like those people. Why don't we do something about them? Why don't we just bang their heads together? And I, and I know you no. can't say that in this day and age. You can't say that. But I was driving along hearing him say it thinking, Thank heavens there are still some people and some areas of the media where you can say that. But I, but I, but I feel that, yeah. that, uh, that, and I'm not suggesting for a second that it becomes a kind of you know, Fox News kind of world. But, I'm, but I just think, but I just think <laughs> there has to be a point beyond which we have to have an element of common sense in, how, in allowing people to be themselves. 
So, John, just to, 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 do you think, therefore, when you look back on your career, that you preferred it in the early days more than the, the, the latter half? Not because of you built up all of this huge experience over the years, but I mean, I remember the days in the Open Championship where you could be found in the afternoon with that amazing rucksack full of gizmos and technology to broadcast. And you would produce a show whilst walking around the Open Championship, presumably feeling very unfettered, and you could do what you like. And over time, that's changed. So was it a better experience when you were younger? Well, it was a different experience. No question about that. And, and also, you know, when you're doing it at the outset, there's that huge sense of experience and heading out into the unknown and trying things. It's a lot harder to try something new when you've been doing it for an awful long time. Uh, you know, the, the, the danger with these conversations is you end up being the old fart leaning against the bar saying, in the good old days. Mm. <laughs> and, and, you know, I actually, I went out to my first dinner party last night since, since 2019. Um, and it was very pleasant. It was, it was going to be a six till eight outside dinner party that, uh, you know, because it, the weather it was getting colder. We actually ended up staying there till nearly midnight because it was, A, it was great to have a conversation in that way. But also it was just, in, we were having conversations. There were, there were various media people there talking about how our industry has changed and also talking about actually how, if you look at the technical quality, the flexibility, the ease of access to people and all that sort of stuff, how much better it is now than it ever was then, how, diff, how, how constrained we were by the technical inadequacies of what we were dealing with and our ability to get hold of individuals and all that sort of stuff. So you have to weigh one up with t'other. And so you, it, it's, it's, you can't just sit there you know, l- you know, lamenting the loss of this, that, and the other. It's a bit like what, you know, if you watch the Rugby International from 1975, and somebody would say, it was much better in the old days, you didn't have blockers running, and you didn't have this, you didn't have that. Yeah, but you had people, you had people missing tackles. You had, the ball, you had people kicking the ball out all the time, and, and it seemed like acres of time when nothing happened. So things evolve and things change, and they aren't necessarily better they're just different. And I suppose in an ideal world, you, you cherry pick bits from different eras and create the ideal scenario and the ideal environment in which to broadcast, but you can't do that. John, uh, I want to come back to something you said a wee while ago, uh, and you'll understand the reason I'm asking this. Uh, you said you were doing broadcasting a little bit in your spare time. Uh, you were you were doing something else. You chose to broadcast when you felt like it. So that leap to then going from there to saying, do you want to go to Seoul? Something must have happened. Somebody must have come to you and said, you know, you're really good at this. What, what I want to ask you is, when did you realize that this was really something that you had, what you've proven is, is a very natural talent for? When did that you realize that you could do it beyond just in your coffee break? Well, I was doing the breakfast show on the local radio station and it was still, to this day, it was still the most enjoyable job I've ever had. A- apart from the alarm going off at 20 past four, that was a major issue. I think probably, I-, I think the scourge of that is I've barely had a good night's sleep in the last 30, 30 odd years. Um, but, uh, but just the idea of walking into a studio at six o'clock in the morning and saying, hi everybody, to whoever's out there listening. It's a very natural thing to do. And I, I think, I th- but I also think, and this is not not answering the question, I just think it's, 
again, it does just go back to how you were brought up. You know, I spent many years overseas with my dad was in the forces, didn't have a telly. So all you had was radio. So you just listened to radio the whole time. I, I mean, I listened, I, I, I was at, in the days before trannies, I had, a, I took a radio with me wherever I went because I just, I, I loved listening to music, but I just suddenly, I, I had a love of the relationship between the broadcaster and the listener. Obviously I was the listener at that time. And I, I always think, people always say to me, what's the difference between radio and television? I've never really felt that when I'm on television, the audience are my friends, if that sounds... You're a radio uh, guy, John. You, we we can say that. You're a radio guy. But, but it's because, again, it's because, how, you know, te- television, I love doing TV and it's been great fun and, I've, and I'm still doing it. And I'm really, you know, I'm looking forward to doing Roland Garros in a couple of weeks' time. That'll be a great fortnight. Um, and I love doing it. But the relationship between the broadcaster and the viewer, there is something, there's a barrier there. Whether it's the camera, whether it's the massive technology, whatever it might be, in my head anyway, I'm, I'm sure if you were talking to Philip Schofield or somebody, he would say the opposite. But, but to me, there, there are certain technological and other barriers between the broadcaster and the viewer on television that you don't have in radio. In radio, the simplicity of it, you, the microphone, the listener. The listener takes you. That's the other thing as well. You know, television, by and large, let's face it, is a static experience. You're sitting at home and you might might go to the kitchen or whatever it might be. You take radio wherever you go. You know, you are broadcasting and you're you're having a... I'm I'm interviewing you and somebody else who's listening thinks, God, I've just got to go now. So they stop listening to you and me in the house and they listen to it while walking to get in the car, and they get in the car, and we're still having the same conversation. So whatever anybody's doing, they are sharing our, our shared experience. And so I think that sense of engagement with people and, all, and always listening to how the best broadcasters do it compared with the ones who are forced, unnatural, pretentious, affecting some kind of style or something. I think it's something that if you listen to radio all the time as you're growing up, which I did. I was never, we weren't, we weren't a great television family. There was always the radio on. My mum loved music, and so we always had music radio on and things like that. You listen, and you're always listening, and you, know, that, you are the proverbial blind hen who picks up crumbs wherever it goes. And if you pick up enough crumbs, in the end you have a cake. And, and I think that's how it works as, as the years go by. I really do. Did you have a, a broadcaster that was your, someone not necessarily modelled yourself on you, you're very much your own man, I know that, but were there people that you admired oh, God, yes, in the yeah. sports broadcasting that you kind of wanted to, to emulate a little? Yeah, well, Robert Robinson was my, one of my great heroes. He used to do a programme uh, on radio called Stop the Week on Radio 4 that was just absolutely must listen. Uh, just it's so erudite, but so witty and, and so irreverent, which I loved. And then, you know, you had, you, you had Noel Edmonds on Radio 1. You had, you had, there, were, there were people presenting all over the place. And that's why I think, actually, that when Radio 5 Live came along, actually when Radio 5 came along, the key thing I felt, even going back to the Radio 2 days, actually, why, especially when we, we were doing sport on Radio 2, why was there a certain way that Gloria Hunnerford and whoever it was would do their programs on Radio 2. And then the moment 
we became a sports program immediately after they stopped, we had to adopt a different kind of approach because it was sport, because it was Southampton yeah. against Aston Villa. Why does that suddenly make it, you know, uh, uh, some uh, you know Gettysburg Address? It, it's not. It's just a continuation of what's gone before. It's just that we're not talking about the Everly Brothers. We're talking about a, a game in the English First Division. What's the difference? So why don't we just broadcast in the same way? And and that was a battle that. You know, I was among a few people who we just kind of fought it because we said, well, we don't get this formality thing. And if you fast forward now 30 odd years, you know, you, if you look at talk sport, if you look at really Radio 5 Live, if you look at the way that sport is now presented and broadcast, it's very much picked up that battle and run with it for three decades now. But if you went back three decades and more and saw the way that Frank Boff did grandstand and things like that, this is not a criticism. It's just how it was. But it needed changing yeah. because society was changing and the way that it was being done needed to change with it. John, how, how did the advent of uh, Sky and pay TV affect broadcasting as a business from your perspective? Because obviously it brought in a whole bunch of new pundits, broadcasters, journalists. We were kind of swamped with names that we'd never heard of. And obviously the terrestrial broadcasters lost a lot of the, the kind of jewels in the crown of, of broadcasting to Sky Sports, for example. How did that change it from the journalist perspective? Well, I think it changed the complacency that there was inevitably Correct. in those Correct. who were already there. Yeah. It forced people to up their game considerably or lose the game altogether. Um, I think it allowed opportunities, you know, let's face it, for obvious reasons. If there were only two channels showing sport, there were very, and it was a duopoly, there were very limited opportunities for people. So it suddenly opened up chances for a wide variety of people to actually enter the industry and subsequently some of them be unbelievably good at it. So, but, it, but I think more importantly is what it did for the fan for the spectator, for the viewer. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that they announced yesterday that, that Channel 4 were showing the Lions game against Japan and then the highlights of the test matches. The first, the first rugby that's been seen on free-to-air television from the Lions tour since 1993. That's just, that's, no, no, that, everybody who's under 30 has never seen them. If you haven't got Sky, has never seen a game, a Lions, yeah. a Lions rugby game on television. You know, this, that's how seismic the shift was. But, you know, it's very easy to forget, talking about the old man leaning on the bar saying in the good old days, there were no overseas cricket tours on television in the winter. You know, you didn't see Roland Garros on television. You didn't, I mean, all these things that were happening all over the place, you just didn't have access to them. And so a lot of great sporting events that happened, great dramas, great tragedies, whatever it might be, you had almost no personal recollection of them because you'd never had a chance to see them. And now suddenly this avalanche of opportunities were there. And so whatever criticisms people may make about the way that, you know, the, where the money's gone and if it's been right, rightly distributed and all that sort of stuff, fundamentally, nobody's forcing anybody to take out a subscription to Sky or BT or whoever it might be. It's a choice. And the addition of that choice has enriched the lot of the sports fan exponentially and has made sport... A, a, a so much more vibrant commodity, I think, across 
across yeah. the, across the, the spectrum. I mean, it does mean, obviously, that so many other sports get a chance for a slice of that cake, even though some of it may be infinitesimal. And some of the audiences are non-existent. You know, I mean, there are lots, lots of sport that is broadcast and a lot of sports governing bodies say, oh, yeah, we've got a contract with X as a way to seduce sponsors and things like that. What they carefully forget to mention is, they, yes, they've got a contract with X and the audience is naught. And, you know, there are, there are many, many sports that are being broadcast whose audience figures, they don't register. They don't register at all because the number of people watching is so small. But at least it's there. If you are a fan of whatever sport it might be, and this is going back to what we were saying earlier on, even you know, even on a podcast, if I happen to throw a particular sport in there to criticise it, oh, well, you, know, you know what's going to happen. Did you see it? You know, so in the end, I, yeah. I, you know, but, but whatever sport it might be, the fact that nobody's watching it is neither here nor there. At least it's there. At least it's an opportunity. So which, which me growing up, you know, if I'd been an absolute obsessive fan for whatever reason of, you know, mixed martial arts in those days, there, was, there would have been absolutely nowhere that I could have seen it. Nowhere at all. So that's why I think we should actually say hallelujah for the revolution that happened in, you know, 89. And, and changed, if you're involved yeah. in sport, changed all of our lives. But, but, but change them for the better, really, really. Yeah. And the, yeah. I just say also the production values as well. If you look at how how staid and how how slow and meandering a lot of the coverage was on free to air television until that moment, suddenly it was like somebody had literally stuck a needle in, in proverbially in, in, in the broadcast's <laughs> ass and said, "If if you don't look out." you're going to be history and it forced people to change. And that was, that was all for the good. I think you're, you're always safe in a non winter Olympics year using curling as your example of a sport. Don't ever use it in a, in a winter Olympics year, whatever you do, that would be yeah. catastrophic, but a non winter Olympics okay. always use that one. John, John, I wanted to like take this thought process a little bit further on, you know, now with the, the in, invention of tech and, you know, if you think that broadcasting and certainly sports broadcasting was kind of lean back in one way and now with the tech, it's lean forward and interactive. And that means you get things like user generated content, Arsenal fan TV. Where do we stop the line and say we're losing the quality here? And yes, everybody's got a voice, but we've lost the quality bar. Well, I think that question would have been a very different question 18 months ago. But I think what COVID has done, you know, the idea 18 months ago that some bloke on his phone could do a live interview in the 10 o'clock news, you know, you'd have had director generals of the BBC throwing themselves off the 14th floor saying, you know, this is never, ever going to happen. Now you don't even think about it. You know, joining us now from wherever is somebody on their phone who happens to be an expert in this, that and the other. We don't, we don't even bat an eyelid. You just watch it, mm-hmm. accept it for what it is. So I think the, the quality threshold, A, the technological quality of, of the devices we've got, obviously is getting better and better anyway. I, I think we're getting, far, we're getting closer and closer to the point. I filmed a, do, I filmed a, a contribution to a documentary yesterday um, with a guy with a camera that wasn't much bigger than a, a notebook that I'm holding in my hand at the moment. And even 10 years ago, that contribution of mine, which will probably be 40 seconds in the general scheme of this documentary, that contribution of mine would have required a cameraman, a sound man, a producer, and 
a, a general sort of factotum runner person to make notes about this, that, and the other. Now it's 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 just any everybody and anybody can be a broadcaster. Anybody and everybody can be a director, a producer, and I and I think. The, the things, the grand things in Hollywood that need mega production values will continue to have them. But I, yep. think, I think fundamentally, stuff that you watch on a day-in, day-out basis, this is, when, I'm not saying 100 metres at the Olympic Games, but I'm just saying the stuff that you watch on a day-in, day-out basis on Sky Sports News or whatever it might be, on Arsenal TV, on, you know, I, I suspect we're heading down the path where almost every major sporting body you know, Durham County Cricket Club TV, All England Club television for tennis, you know, yep. the table tennis television. You know, I think quality, quality will be secondary to getting the product out there. And I think the argument on that will be we're giving the public what they want. We're giving them constant information, constant data. So if you're running a sports editorial business, like radio, broadcast, whatever, uh, and you know that exactly what you've said is 100% true. I always sustain with, with a heavy heart often that there's no money in the center of being balanced and nuanced and you have to go one side or the other mm. and that's desperately tragic. Well, the, the option you've got in that situation is you say we're going to be, inverted commas, old school and we are going to be much more methodical, much more measured, much more well, impartial, but also offering an overview that people can just listen to what we have to say and then make a decision. Or just broadcast what's happening. Just say, this is what's happening, and you can, have, you can decide for yourself. The decision you have to make, if that's the path down which you go, is, is there a market for that? You know, exactly. is society changing so much that actually exactly. all you want is somebody saying, Lampard must go. And then somebody else saying Lampard must stay. And then people throwing stones at each other. If, 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 yeah. that, if that's the road that we're going down irrevocably and that the middle ground is lost, then that's more about society than about... Sport is just a, it's just a representation of society, isn't it? It's a microcosm of it. And if that's how society is going, which perhaps it is, is how it is, then sports broadcasting will reflect that. It's interesting, Roger, to talk about technology and, and some of the sports that you're very synonymous with, obviously Wimbledon, you've, you've, pre you've, you've presented for many years, is there's been some technology like Hawkeye in, in tennis and Wimbledon in particular, which perhaps has enhanced, enhanced the viewing pleasure. Are you generally a fan of technology as a broadcaster where you feel it has helped? Or do you just like the old school of Richie Benno, sort of you say less and let the pitchers speak for themselves? Where, do you, where, where are you on that? I'm with technology making the decision about the correctness of a goal being scored, a wicket being lost, a ball being out. I think, I think that we cannot yearn for the old days of, <laughs> well, that was bad, that wasn't it, old boy? You know, it was missing off stump by four yards, but he still gave you that. I mean, those, those, those days, it may have been funny, and it may, we may have gone, <laughs> but actually, A, what about the guy in the middle? B, what about the people who've paid, you know, this past, say it's, say it's, you know, Ben Stokes, and I am in charge of a broadcast company who've paid zillions to cover whatever tournament it might, might be, and I need Ben Stokes to be at the wicket because when he's at the wicket and hitting the ball, it means more people are watching, which means more revenue for the advertisers. I can't have him being given out to a ludicrous LB, LBW decision. If he gets out, he gets out, but I can't have human error 
getting in the way of this monumental investment. That's the reality of the world we're in now. So therefore, uh, you know, I, th- I think that technology is an integral part of sport now. And the way that football, sat, you know, inevitably like a snail has embraced VAR and, and finally is getting to the point where we stopped talking about it, almost anyway, stopped talking about it. I mean, come on, guys, you just could you not see this was A, inevitable, and you had to embrace it from the word go. And then we wouldn't have had all these nonsensical million, well, we've actually we've had nothing to talk about in 100,000 football phone-ins for the last 18 months or so. But fundamentally, if, you know, if somebody's big toe is offside, he's offside. You know, once we've established that that's offside, then let's just move on and accept that that's how it is and not allow, you know, a linesman to make a decision like that. I, I think that's the way of the world. And I think, I think it would have been an, an anachronism if sport allowed itself to get stuck in a, in a, in a former world, if you like, in a former age. John, uh, I wanted to, to, to ask you a little bit about working with heroes. I mean, you, you, at the start of the, the show, you talk very, very, very beautifully about how you picked up the love of sport, like we all did around the calendar, driven by terrestrial TV. And you, got, you, you really spoke about it because you knew about it. Then you, one of the very few people get to work with the people that you maybe saw when you were a young boy. Mm. And I know in my very brief experience of that, I found that quite a challenge in a good way. You know, how do you, how did you manage to do that? To like be sitting beside McEnroe or, or you name whoever you want and, and, and give them the right respect on and off camera. It's a really good question. And the answer to that is I actually I genuinely don't know. I've got a great McEnroe story that going to Wimbledon in 77, getting my program signed by Gerolitis, Borg and Connors, but I didn't get McEnroe to sign it because I couldn't, I, I didn't know where he was. And he, I think he stayed in the dressing room a, a long time. And he was a qualifier, you know, who, um, and the minibus was going back to university and people were saying, come on, we're going, we've got to go. And I said, I haven't got this, I haven't got the fourth guy signing this. And they said, listen, you'll never hear him again. You know, he's a flash in the pan and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, so I got back on the minibus and went back to university. And, and 22, three years later, whatever it was, when I first worked with Mac, and I, I took the programme in, and he signed it, Better Late Than Never, John McEnroe. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I told him the story, which he thought was very funny. And I just think it's just how you deal with people, actually. You know, there are certain people, I'm sure, that you know, I'd be reduced to gabbling mess in front of if, if I suddenly if somebody somebody said you know you've got three seconds to interview Paul McCartney but but even then I just sometimes think maybe if you just say hi it's really great to meet you and they say hi nice to meet you sir I think it's almost like the moment you start saying you know god awful weather isn't it it's, it's just it's just how if you just talk I think you just engage with people and uh, Terry Wogan when, when you learn certain things and if you, or, if, or you, you get the opportunity to learn certain things. And if you listen and absorb it, it really stays with you. And I, I got the chance to co-host the Olympics in Barcelona with Terry Wogan, which was an unforgettable two and a half weeks. And A, what a great guy, obviously a phenomenal broadcaster and all that sort of stuff. But a, just a phenomenal way of dealing with, you know, from the Queen to the road sweeper and all those other cliches that people always trot out. And he just always said, if you're the same in the coffee shop at the bar 
at the checkout in the supermarket, getting your car washed, as you are on air, you will have a long career. It's when you start trying to be something else that you're not, which then midway through that career, you've kind of forgotten, you've, you've kind of forgot where you started from. And so you can't work out, if you want to suddenly change direction, you're not quite sure where you get, where you end up going. This is not a very coherent sentence. But anyway, what it boils down to, I think, is if you just, if, I think if you're just natural, just to answer the question straight, I think if you're just you, and also just in the sense of how your eyes are and you smile and just, just, just your demeanour, yeah. you, you just know. I mean, it's like, it's like you know, if it, it, you're, you're just saying, you're saying without saying, I respect you enormously. I know you're an unbelievably wonderful tennis player. I know that if we played from now until midnight tomorrow night, I wouldn't get a single point off you. But nonetheless, you know, we're in this together. So how about it? They kind of, they kind of get that vibe and off you go. Which is probably a ridiculous, probably a ridiculous answer to the question, but but I just think it, that's kind of how we do. No, it's a great answer, yeah. John. It's a great well, answer. And, and let me follow up on that on the on the on the many years of people that you have interviewed and, and you trawl through your memory bank of those. What's your <laughs> what or who's been the shocker? Who's been the person? I mean, I know Terry Wogan. I heard him on uh, when he was uh, on Desert Island Disc. He was talking about the George Best interview which was obviously a disaster yeah. because best had had a couple have you had are you able to share now where you've you've interviewed someone and gone oh my god this is a this is a nightmare yeah i mean i've had i've had loads of interviews which have often been my fault that have gone horribly wrong because it's like the start is so key of an interview and in television terms it's about making eye contact it's about saying, I'm on your side. Even if four questions in, you're going to come up with a horrible question about, you know, <laughs> and what about that, uh, that trolley load of shopping that you nicked from Sainsbury's or whatever, you know, or whatever it might be. You're, you're, you're saving that up, but you don't start with that because the interview's kaput. And I haven't really got any horrors like that. I mean, I've got a Venus Williams story, but that we'd be from here for another hour, which is all, again, all my fault. But I think what it, it, it is the moment if you start an interview badly, especially by asking two or three questions that are closed questions, yeah. you really are in trouble. In the moment your first question is, that wasn't, you know, you must be relieved. Yes. <laughs> especially when you were 2-0 down at half-time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if, you, if you haven't given yourself time to breathe with a, what did you say at half-time, so that they've got to say something... Suddenly you're a minute into an interview and you have been talking for 50 seconds and your interviewee has been talking for 10. And then suddenly something in your head goes, this isn't going well here. The balance of this interview is completely... Oh, I, I can tell you one story, just very quickly. Actually, I just remembered it. I just remembered this. Greg Smith. <laughs> Greg Smith, the Australian coach of the Wallabies in 84, interviewed him. And I did a, a three-minute interview with him for Radio 4, I think it was, really, might be Radio 2 anyway, where the interview was three-minute long. I think I was, I was two minutes 15 of it, and he was 45 seconds. That is not how the balance of an interview should be. And I'd asked far too many closed questions, and he'd given monosyllabic answers. And I got more and more intimidated, so asked more and more closed questions. So he gave more and more monosyllabic answers. So it was just, it was an absolute horror of an interview. It was only made better for me when the famous uh, Scottish journalist Norman Mayer wrote about 
Greg Smith on the morning of the match between the Wallabies and the Barbarians, that Greg Smith was a man who, if out riding with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, pestilence, famine, plague and death, would not noticeably alleviate the mood of the party. <laughs> and and when, I, when I read that line in The Scotsman, I think, that morning, I went, oh, Norman, you have no idea how much better you have made me feel about the abomination of the interview that I had perpetrated the day of the day before. <laughs> Well, you know how you were mentioning about these difficult questions that you save up to the end? Yeah, go on. What were you thinking with that lovely French girl? What was going through your mind at that moment? Because, you know, I think you don't realise, but most of people would have thought we were probably all thinking the same thing. You know, it's like, what, what, were, you, what were you thinking about? Would you just forget you were on TV? Well, I wasn't on TV, I was on radio. Um, but the, what, what are you thinking? You're just, what you're thinking is you've still got another 50 minutes to go. It's about 10 past one. You've got 50 minutes to go before the singles, Wimbledon singles starts. You've been talking, you've been previewing this game for an hour and 10 minutes already. And you're thinking, this, this is a very long road to go here. And... <laughs> And we've, I've really, I've gone round in circles here so far. I, I, I'm, I'm just, my brain is just, like what, there is no other aspect to this game that I can possibly think of bringing up. And what I was trying to talk about was her, her, Marion. Marion, you know, I've worked with for the last 10 years at Roland Garros, who's just, hey, may I also say a damn good broadcaster. Um, but, you know, her unbelievable work ethic. So that's what I was trying to talk about. I know, I know you were. And, yeah. and, and I kind of got into a bit of a twizzle about it as well. And, I, and, I, and people thought it was a pathetic excuse, but genuinely at the time, I was standing, I, I, I do get, and I have had for the last two days, the most, I get hideous hay fever. And I was standing by a grass court at Wimbledon where I'd been standing for the previous hour and a half. And my, my nose was going all over the place and whatnot. And I'm trying to think, what earth are we going to talk about? We've got another 50 minutes to go here. And then you just say something, and then the world falls in. And, you know, of course it was wrong. Yeah, of course it was wrong. And it's just, you just have to, you know, at the time, you just think, oh, well, at the time you don't realise the enormity of it, and then very quickly afterwards you do. John, changing tack a bit, you're, you're, the sport that you play, played for a long time with, with Isha, and I'm sure others, was, uh, was rugby, and you've been uh, the front man of, of rugby union for a long time in, in the United Kingdom. This is a game that obviously had a mega change in 95 with the, with the advent of professionalism, which has seen the game evolve extraordinarily. And you've, you talked about that earlier. And now we're seeing um, with private equity investment coming in from yeah. CVC in the Northern Hemisphere and very likely from uh, Silver Lake, an Anglo-American company in, in the Southern Hemisphere. And you're seeing really big money coming in into the sport. As a as an as someone like me who is an observer of the game or a lover of the game, what's your view of your beloved amateur rugby union as we grew up with it, but potentially sort of going into the next phase of its of its um, of its history? Well, the game is changing. The game's role is changing. People's attitude to the game is changing. 
the, the commitment and the time that your average amateur rugby player is prepared to give to the cha- game is changing because society is changing and the, the days of getting to the club at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning and having a four-hour bus journey and playing and getting them at midnight, you know, that, 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 is an, that is consigned to the history books and will never reappear again. The sport is changing. The access that people have to it on television obviously is changing and therefore it's got to be part of the sport attainment business and i i went to a match last weekend because of the covid restrictions where there were no scrums and no malls i can tell you something for the non-committed rugby expert it was a hell of a sight better spectacle to have no scrums and things like that because the game kept moving i watched this game at last saturday where the ball was in play for 85 percent of the match I get into the clubhouse immediately afterwards or a tent with the screens up watching Bath against Bristol a minute and a half into that game there's the first scrum goes down resets it's three minutes before the game's underway again after a minute and a half of that match starting so you're four and a half minutes it's four and a half minutes past three and you've had a minute and a half of action as CBC come in and whoever else comes in all over the world if they are going to come in that you know it wouldn't surprise me if they suddenly start saying, you know, these boring bits, what are we going to do about this? And also, you've got the you've got the player welfare issues, you've got all the concussion issues. You know, the French are starting to make, or they're talking about below a certain level, and who knows where how far this is going to go. The French are talking about only tackling below the waist, so that changes the whole dynamic of the game as well. Who knows what this inverted commas product is going to look like in 15, 20 years' time. But if people listen to this, throw their hands up in horror and say that sounds like complete anathema to us, that is not rugby as I know rugby. I would say, yeah, but the rugby as you know rugby almost doesn't exist now anyway. And wouldn't you rather have your local rugby club being vibrant and people there all the time, you know, lots of revenue streams, kids, women, uh, whoever it might be, wouldn't you rather that than a game that was just diminishing, inexorably diminishing year on year, because that's where we're going in terms of participation. And that's, if we're not careful, is where we're going to go as other sports become so much more vibrant, if you like, and so much more relevant. That's the horrible word, but more relevant to people growing up now. That's why park run is so good. That's why cycling is what it is. You You can do sport in your own time to suit your own agenda. You're not absolutely held hostage by three o'clock on a Saturday and that's where rugby has really got to wise up and I think wise up soon or things will you know or the ship will sail before anybody's actually done anything about it. Mm. You, you mentioned there John something that we always talk about for three years on this podcast now which is is sport entertainment is it content uh, and I think people will be very uh, interested to hear what you talk about there because that's my point of view, maybe coming at it from more a kind of like business sustainability point of view. I, I think it has to adapt quite significantly. And I think one of the challenges, and I speak to you now as somebody that's involved in the governance of sport at grassroots level, I think some of the governing bodies and the people in there have got a mistaken belief that they are some kind of guardians of the historic legacy and they are not adapting quick enough to the adjustment to entertainment. I would agree with you 100% on that. And I read an interesting piece in the paper today, actually, about the, I don't know, I can't remember his name, the American footballer who's, a, I think, a wide receiver 
who ran in the American sprint trials last week, which everybody is saying is the athletics world is up in arms about this, saying this is diminishing and demeaning of the athletics world. No, it's not. It's absolutely fantastic because it's the first piece I've read about athletics in the newspaper for weeks. When did you last yeah. anything about athletics other than about Nike's Vaporfly in the for weeks and weeks and weeks? Yeah. Know? And so the article then goes on to say, you know, why do we not have Johnny May running against whoever it might be representing the Premier League, running against whoever it might be as, as, as an integral part of a Diamond League athletics meeting in this country? How interesting would that be? It gets people involved. This is the, it's absolutely key that everybody in governing bodies opens their minds up to every avenue possible to engage sponsors and obviously advertisers, but people, the public, in what the yep. product is. And, and, and athletics is a, is a very good example there. You know, always, you know, we've got to have the hammer and the shot and this. No, you don't. You just don't. You know, there is nothing, you know, days gone by, there was a standing high jump, which they got rid of. Okay, well, why? What, they got rid of that because they were prepared to move on to do something else. You know, is there anything wrong with just throwing a cricket ball these days rather than a javelin? What's the, what's the difference? Or a tennis ball or a ping pong ball, you know, a golf ball, whatever you want to do. You know, just, just, let, just have a conversation that would make, not me, because it's not about me, it's about the next generation. And it's actually not about, actually, it's not about them, it's about the generation beyond that as well, that's going to make them want to get off their phones and actually put on the TV or watch it on their phone or on their wrist or on their fingernail or whatever it is in 20 years' time, go, I've got to see this. In the way that, yeah. I, I, in the way that I had to watch, you know, a, a co against Ovette 30 years ago, the, the governing bodies have got to create things, not, not totally manufacture, but if it needs a bit of shaping, then that's the reality of the business world we live in now. Shaping Correct. events that people are going to say, where we're recording this at three o'clock in the afternoon, that you and I are going to say, I tell you what, are you watching that at eight o'clock tonight? I've got to see that. That's what it is. It's all about. It's about wanting people to talk about something, engage in it, and it's not about you. You're, as long as you're not completely casting the history of your sport to the wind, it's about shaping it for a modern world, and that's what national governing bodies need to do. Awesome. John, I don't know what your your future plans are as a broadcaster. You've been going on for so long, but I'm delighted that you're going to be at Roland Garros, and I suspect there's quite a lot of gigs left in you. But I think one of the reasons we were so keen to, to have you on the show is that you unmuzzled. You saying it as it is, is something that I've always enjoyed in the, in the many years that I've known you. And I hope that the people listening on this will, will reflect that having someone with huge experience and a point of view and brave enough to have the point of view is something that is so important as we evolve um, the sports industry. So I think on behalf of all of our, all our listeners, those who are definitely British-based, a, thank you, because I think you brought sport to an awful lot of people. You did for me in, on the, in the Radio 5 days. I've told you that over, over the years when I used to sit in car traffic jams on the M4, um, which was a lot. And I just, I just feel that as new technology evolves, is that the, the real broadcasters who are there to paint the picture are people like you. And so thank you for coming on and sharing so much of of your experience and and we just hope that you're on our screens and on our in our ears for, for many years to come thanks john it's great to talk to you john um and if i can say for 30 years ago 
you had no uh, need or requirement to be so nice and accommodating to a silly little boy <laughs> talking about Italian football. Uh, and I'll never, ever forget that. You were such a help to me. And I've been so delighted to have you on today, John. Thank you. Well, that's really kind of you, Roger. And I'll tell you something, that just quickly to say that European Super League thing. I remember so vividly running that Berlusconi interview and Graham Souness and Trevor Francis were in the studio and saying to them, what do you think? And they were saying, it's complete preposterous nonsense. It's never going to happen. Because Berlusconi had said there'd be a Super League by the end of the, by the turn of the century. So he had 10 years, you know, he said by 99, he said there'd be a European Super League. He was obviously ahead of the game um, and it hasn't happened yet. But, you know, I think there is an inevitability about it. So, but those, those were, they were very happy days as well. Happy days, sir. Happy days. Great, much. Thank, Thank you very much. Thanks, John. I have to say that was every bit as good as I expected to be. What a thoroughly enjoyable uh, hour that was. It was lovely. Uh, I just thought John really talked so well about his love for sport at the start, how he picked it up like we all do, watching the television, watching the, the sports season as it, as it goes forward. But he also showed himself a real modernizer as well. I really, really liked that. I've always liked listening to John, a wise person, no nonsense, just gets to what's good and what's bad. And I hope that came across for everybody. And, you know, Rog, what I enjoyed as well is that we've talked a lot about OTT, more channels, more ways to consume sport. And what he reminds us, as some of the great commentators in sport remind us, whether it be golf or rugby, cricket, American football, whatever it may be, is that... Part of the entertainment of sport comes through the presentation of sport, and that requires real professionals. And it is very clear, listening to John, as we've all done over the years, but even just chatting to him now, what a true pro he is. And I would urge the new producers, the kids who are making the new OTT channels and other ways to consume sport is don't forget the old guard because they really know what they're doing. They do. They do, yeah. It's, you know, it's, I, I always think about, this stuff and, and and quite a lot lately with some of the golf I've been watching is that, that, that every iconic sporting moment, when you play it back in your mind, you play the commentary back. You know, whether it's the 1966 World Cup final, uh, you know, any one of Tiger Woods' uh, you know, crazy good golf shots. I, I always hear the commentary when I visualise the shot and that's what guys like John do so well. They they, they put us right in that moment. And, and you know, it's a, it's a real art to talk about golf on the radio, right? But if you can do that, you can just about commentate on anything. It's, it's a remarkable skill. And, and didn't, he speak, didn't he speak so beautifully about radio as a medium? You know, when I, when I met John all those years ago, he was introduced as, as, as really a radio guy who, who was obviously coming on to the, the mass market television. But, you know, he spoke beautifully there about, you know, what makes radio so special. And uh, it was just great, I thought. And, and thanks to Pump Jack for allowing us to do that. Well, I must say, I must, got a reference. One of the things that actually, when I really met John in very much in the early days of, of my career, I was at the Open Golf Championship and John used to do the afternoon um, drive show and he would produce and present the entire show with a, a mobile radio backpack on. I kind of reference it in the show. But literally queuing in the, the, the news, having interviews with spectators, finding people to talk to, all live, all unscripted, as he, as he references in the show, he's making it up as he goes along, but also conducting an orchestra, which is a national broadcast on his back. 
unbelievable skill and, and a reminder that radio is a medium that um, really has massive value, particularly in sport. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, all that remains is to thank, uh, as Roger said, our sponsors, Pumpcheck Betaworks. Uh, without them, this wouldn't be possible. And to thank you for listening. Um, we appreciate every one of you. If you would take a moment to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes store, that really helps us uh, reach a wider audience. You can follow us on Twitter if you're not already doing so. For some bizarre reason, you'll find us at Entertained R. That's the word A-R-E. You can find me on Twitter at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you can find me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And you can find myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, until next time. <laughs>